Revelation chapter five is where you should be. And tomorrow, no, not tomorrow, don't, don't, don't tomorrow, I won't be here tomorrow. Yesterday, yesterday I was at the soccer fields watching soccer games, many soccer games. Lots of, we were there all day from like 9.15 to 1.30. It was all day long. And at one point during a slow moment in one of my daughter's games, we'll call it the first half, okay? We'll call it the first half. I pulled out my Bible. I brought it with me in a notebook just because I had to catch up. And, and I opened up to chapter 5, verse 1. And when I read chapter 5, verse 1, I immediately smiled and I closed my Bible. And I just mused and meditated on chapter 5, verse 1. Because in chapter 5, verse 1, and the story that we see continuing after that, all of the questions you've ever had in your entire life are answered in chapter 5. All the problems, all the mistakes, all the chaos, all the calamity, all the heartaches and disappointments, all the hopes and dreams, all of it is in chapter 5, verse 1. And I closed, I was like, this is going to be so fun. This is going to be so exciting to teach. And I kept reading through it as the day went on, and I got home. And then I was reminded, though, that I promised you guys we would do a teaching on the crowns that are promised to those who live for Christ on earth and go to heaven. And so we're not going to study chapter 5 tonight. Nope, it's not going to happen. It's, it's a life-changing chapter. It's going to change your life. You're going to have to come next week, though, for that one. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it to you, though, chapter 5. I'm going to read it right now, and then we're going to pray. And then we're going to talk about the fact that you and I, who are believers here, and it's the 6 p.m. service, and you've elected to come to church, so I'm imagining we're all believers, that the believers one day, will be translated into heaven. And we will actually experience what John saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We'll be there. See, he got a sneak peek into coming attractions. He got to see 2,000 years ago what was coming down the pike. And yet you and I are promised, if we're believers, that one day we'll go to heaven. And because you and I can see into the future, chapter 4 and 5, because we can see that, it helps us to navigate in our lives right now. You see, you don't got to worry about your death date. You don't got to worry about heaven. You don't got to worry about any of that stuff. Your main problem, your main prerogative, your main project is your life right now. And what you do here matters and determines, dictates what's going to happen there. And so we get such a privilege to read chapters four and five and see what's going to happen in order that our feet would be founded and grounded and we would know what's going on, how to live our lives and what to do. So last night as I was putting together chapter five, I began to go back into the crowns, this idea that everything we do down here determines who we are in heaven and what we'll do forever. And so we're gonna study the crowns just a little bit tonight. During the 9 a.m. service, I realized quickly we weren't gonna get through all six crowns. It just didn't happen. And so we're gonna get through one crown tonight. But before then, would you guys tune in with me to chapter five, verse one? Now again, John is on the island of Patmos and he heard the sound of an archangel. The voice, like a trumpet, come up here. And instantly he was translated in the twinkling of an eye, all foreshadowing the rapture. And he got to heaven. And in chapter four, he sees the throne and one sitting upon the throne and 24 other thrones representing the people of God, worshiping him and casting their crowns down and four living creatures with six wings, each praising him night and day, thunderings and lightnings and voices, all of this happening and there are no chapter breaks in the original text. Okay, chapter 5 is something we made up. This was one thought. Chapter 5 helps us to know where we're at. But as soon as he saw the throne and the elders in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, now we see the main attraction, Jesus Christ. He comes on the scene. Let's look at verse 1. I'm going to read all 14 verses, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to talk about that crown tonight. 
And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. This would be interesting because most scrolls didn't have writing on the inside and the outside. This would mean it was full and or complete, possibly also a title deed with a title on the inside and the debt owed on the outside. Seven strings around this scroll, each with a wax signet sealing those seven strings. Seven seals, verse two. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. Imagine the scene, John is broken. There's the scroll in the father's hand, the proverbial question, the rhetorical question, who can open it? Nobody. And John weeps in heaven, tears in heaven. Verse five, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We'll study this in the next coming weeks. Can you imagine? He hears from this elder. Ha ha, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah? He spins to see the lion and he sees this little lamb. In the Greek, it's literally a small lamb, like a really small lamb. When college football teams are choosing their mascots, most teams don't choose lambs, you know? And here comes the lambs down the 50, don't they? You know, there's, it's not a scare, you know, it's the Detroit lions, not the lambs. And and yet he's known as the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Oh, let's see, he's the lamb, as though he'd been slain, because his victory came in sacrifice. We'll study that in the coming weeks. Verse seven, and then he, this lamb, came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's not a real number he was trying for us to figure out. That means it was innumerable. So many people. They were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Verse 14, final verse. And then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. John sees Revelation 4 and 5, the heavenly worship service. Now, chapter 6 through 19 come after chapters 4 through 5. They always do, always will, always have. Chapters 2 through 3 come before chapters 4 
and five. Always have, always do, always will. And so what's happening simultaneously in chapters four and five, John's in heaven, worship, ecstasy, peace, lightning, all that stuff's happening, all of this, the crowns. Chapters six through 19 are simultaneously happening. As now this lamb breaks each seal one at a time, the seven seal judgments will be poured out on a God-forsaking, Christ-rejecting, sinful world. On earth below will be chaos and calamity as the wrath of God is poured out on a sinful, Christ-rejecting world. The bold judgments will be poured out. While in heaven, the church is kept safe from the wrath of God and is not just safe from the wrath of God, but is reunited with the groom because we are indeed the bride and we'll spend those seven years with the Lord while there's seven years of chaos and calamity known as the wrath of God, the great tribulation upon planet earth. That's what we're gonna be studying in the times to come. And even those days, the great tribulation period, it is my opinion that that is not something that needs to consume our mind or worry us, but that which we should be proactively studying and applying to our lives are chapters two and three. Because chapters two and three are directed to the church, to the church age. You see, Revelation is divided into three parts, the things that were, Christ in his resurrected form, the things that are the church age, 2,000 years and going, and the things that will come after this, metatauta, the things after the church age. From chapters four to the rest of the book, the word church isn't mentioned even once. Now, how many guys are at church tonight? At church tonight? Okay, just in case you were wondering, it is a warehouse, but we call it church. Okay, you got a church tonight. This is the church age. It's our turn to ask ourselves, what in the world should we do? Now, I don't name sermons. I don't title them. We just give them the chapter and verse. But if I was going to name this sermon, give it a title, which I haven't done. But if I was going to, I would call it this. I'm going to heaven. Now what do I do? That's what I would title. I'm not going to title it that. You could title it that in your notes if you're a note taker. I'm going to heaven. Now what do I do? Because I'm on my way to heaven. I'm going to be there. In chapters four and five, the Bible says with the voice of a trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive will be caught up in the air to be with him forever in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But I'm not there yet. I'm still living on earth. Now, if I were part of the Trinity Committee, okay, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Luke, okay, if they would have allowed me early on to be part of the committee making decisions, and they said, when people get saved, what should we do after they get saved? I would have voted, take them home. It's over right now. And they would have looked at me and said, boring. Instead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, we're going to save people, okay? We're going to take away their sins, and Christ will pay for them. And then we're gonna to give to those people the righteousness of God. And then we're gonna fill them with the Holy Spirit, a new mind, a new desire, a new purpose, a new power. And then what? We're gonna let them live their lives in that new light, shining that light, sharing that love and producing fruit until the day that they die. Because that's more exciting. Because that means as Jesus comes into your life and pays for your sins and gives you his spirit, he now gives to you not just his spirit, but he gives to you his business plan. He says, I want you to go out now and I want you to do things in my name. You're an ambassador of Christ. That's why you're alive. That's why you're here. That's why you have a pulse. There it is. Right, that's why you have a pulse right now. Because you have a purpose in Jesus. And so if you're like me and you're going to heaven, the question should come into your mind, now what do I do? And I'll tell you what, what our scriptures are going to be about tonight because the uh, Bible gives us guidance, instruction, examples of what to do. It also gives us examples of what not to do. The scriptures are full of exhortation. 
But I want to remind you of John 15. If you don't have a journal, today would be a good day to grab one. They're gone over here. There's some on my right. There's also notepads in the backs of your chair. Write these verses down. I had one person. I do, I do love this person. I'll email them back later. And they were a little confused with the sermon this morning at the 9 a.m. I also got three or four messages from other people saying, great job, I heard it loud and clear. And I want to make sure you guys hear this. So write down these verses. Okay, the first verse I want you to consider is John 15. Jesus is on his way to the cross to die. It's his last sermon, okay? Kind of a big deal. You always want to make sure your last sermon's like crystal clear. Like, I just want, don't, I'm about to give you guys the keys to the car. So here's the insurance policy. Here's the 911 number. I want to make sure you guys know how to do this. In his last words in John 15, as he's walking through the garden, okay, on his way to Gethsemane, he says, you know what, guys? My father's will is that you produce fruit and more fruit and much fruit. He says, I want you guys to be fruit producers. And if you produce fruit for my father, he's gonna prune you. He's gonna cut back things in your life, leafy branches, things that don't produce fruit in order that you produce more fruit. That's the whole idea. I want you guys, as you get saved, to become fruitful and then more fruitful and to produce ultimately much fruit. This is what God wants you doing. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you don't really know what's going on, you're thinking, okay, God loves fruit. Get him some, get him some pineapples. He loves apple. You're like, what's fruit? Fruit, okay, fruit has nothing to do with fruit. Like in that sense, fruit means, and I'll just tell you, fruit is boiled down so simply as the fruit of the spirit, which is love, love, love. This will blow your mind, by the way, especially if you're like me, you've been living for Jesus for almost 20 years now. I gave my life to him at age eight, but I've been living for him right over 21, 21 years. And the Lord says, Luke, you know what I want from you? I want you to be more loving. I want you to produce love, more love, and much love. I want you to love people. I want you to start at your house. I want you to love your spouse just more than you ever have. I want you to love your kids. I want you to go crazy. Just love them. And I want you to love your neighbors. I want you to love your community. I want you to love your, your school. I want you to love your church. And I want you to keep doing That's what love is. And by the way, in John 15, as Jesus gives this message of producing fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, keep growing in love, Jesus goes on to say, because greater love has no man than this than to lay his life down for his friends. So I just want you and I who are saved by grace freely, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's no working for our salvation. That's not the case. But because I'm saved now freely, God wants me to get to work. He wants me to be about his business. He wants me to do things. And let me just go ahead and make sure I'm talking to the right people here. How many of you are completely satisfied where you're at in your Christian journey right now today? Like you're like, I'm, I'm actually pretty, I'm there. I produced fruit when I got saved and then I decided to do more fruit. Now I'm doing much fruit. I'm a much fruit producer. Anybody here <laughs> absolutely just bonkers satisfied in who you are? Let me ask a different question. How many of you guys in your Christianity are super stoked that you're not where you used to be? Oh my gosh. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so glad I'm not where I used to be, right? When the Lord found me in the gutter, when he rescued me and what he's doing, I'm so thankful I'm not where I used to be. But if you're gonna be honest with yourself and with me, I'm not completely overwhelmingly satisfied where I'm at either. It's an interesting quandrum we have ourselves in. Happy I'm not where I used to be, but I'm actually, I gotta, I gotta keep going. I can't just stay here. I can't just be like this the rest of my life. I can't be this spiritual. God didn't bring me this far just to bring me this far. <laughs> he brought me this far to bring me further. And until you lose that pulse, that's the prerogative. That's the business of heaven. He wants you to produce more fruit, which is love. 
And love is evidence. Somebody quoted it out of Galatians chapter 5. Love is peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness and goodness and self-control. Against such, against such, against such, there is no law. What's that mean? It means that you can be as loving as you want to be. Okay, just trip out with me real quick. Against such, there's no law. There are certain things you have to have a little bit of, you know, reserve. Like, oh, it can't be crazy, you know, got to be reserved and conservative. The Bible says about love, there's, there's actually no cap. There's no, you know, how, how, how much love should I love my spouse? You know, just a little bit, right? No, there's no law. What about my stinky kids? What about them? You know, it's like, love them. What about my neighbors? What about the, what about the people that don't love me back? There's no law. Love them. What if it doesn't work? Love. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. It never fails. It will work. It will produce fruit. It will cover a multitude of sins. This is what the Lord's looking for, for you and for me. Because here's the problem. We live in a world that's kind of gone mad. Is our world bonkers? Is everything going crazy out there? Maybe you're like me and you have trouble loving everybody. You see people like, oh, uh, well, there's one. A little bit of love. Ah, you know, and everyone else, nah. Right? Does that happen to you too or just me? Man, yeah, this guy over here. Okay, me, yeah, me and one other honest person. Yeah, I, don't, I have trouble. Let me just remind you. Write this scripture down, Jeremiah 29. And in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 8, God instructs through Jeremiah the prophet to the children of Israel, listen, 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 living in Babylon. He says, hey guys, while you're in Babylon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to buy homes. I want you to get jobs. I want you to make families. And I want you to pray for the government where you live. That's what he says. Now you talk, let me, let me just remind you, while they were in Babylon, you know who was the president? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's crazy. He made a 90-foot image one day. He's like, all oh, y'all worship it, you know? And, and the guys, the three amigos, they didn't do it, and they prayed for him, and he actually gave his life to the Lord. You guys can read the story. Daniel, okay? God told the people there in Babylon, he goes, you know what I want you guys to do? Be loving. Pray for the peace of the city you live in, for in its peace you shall have peace. That's what he said. Okay? You got, don't let the temperature of the governments and the people around you dictate how loving you are and what you do. You're the people of God. Okay? You be the people of God no matter what. There's no law against love. Do it. Try it. Try it in the public school system tomorrow if you're an aide or a teacher or the government system or wherever you live. Just try being more loving. I put such a governor on my love. I'm like, well, I'm just, I, don't have, I don't have a whole bunch. I can't give, give it away. You know? And the Lord's like, I'm the one who produces fruit in you. I want fruit. More fruit and much fruit. Luke, what's going on? And he tests me. I'm just like, I'm just waiting to go to heaven, bro. And he's like, not, not, until, not until I say so. You, you, the most famous Old Testament verse, in my opinion, is Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, not the verses I told you to look up. In 29, 11, God summarizes his command. He says, because I know the thoughts I have for you, thoughts of a future and a hope, peace and not evil. In other words, he was telling the children of Israel, you're not gonna be in Babylon forever. What you do here now matters because it's determining your character and your conduct and who you are. And in 70 years, you're gonna go back to Israel. That's what he was saying. You're gonna, you got more to come. It's a picture of the rapture. It's a picture of deliverance. God says to you and I who are living in a broken system, okay? I don't support every single thing that the government does, both locally and internationally, okay? But I can love them. I can pray for them. Why? Because I'm a heavenly citizen. I'm gonna live forever. What I do now matters for my character and what I do matters for who God wants me to be because I'm living on purpose. And as we understand that, it's gonna change the way we live. Now, let me make sure you guys got this crystal clear. You can write down Philippians chapter two. I'm gonna read it to you. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verse 12. Now that I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, what do I do? Paul says it this way. He says, now that you're living in Babylon, but you're saved, you're God's kids, you're here, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
I want you to get after it. I want you to do things while you're here for the kingdom that is coming. Let me just read it to you. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation. This is beginning to be one of my favorite verses. It's a confusing verse if you don't know what it means. Some people read it and make it mean to think that it says to work for your salvation. Now you're saved, work to stay saved. Okay, let me just alleviate you in that concern. Once you're saved, I believe you're always saved because it wasn't you who saved you, it was God who saved you. And God doesn't unsave people, okay? It's not in his vocabulary. He born you again. You were reborn, regenerated of the spirit. And in order to become dead again, you would have to be aborted by the Holy Spirit. And guess what God doesn't do? That. Okay, just so you guys know, you can act a fool, you can get rebellious, you can get weird, you can wander off, you can do dumb stuff as a believer. It doesn't mean you lost your salvation. Somebody would argue, I had one argument today with a fella, and say, well, what if you don't even follow God ever again after following God and being saved? I would say this, then you were never saved in the first place. You were a looky-loo faker, okay? Easy, easy peasy. Jesus said there will be people in heaven saying, I actually did miracles in your name. And Jesus said, yeah, but I, I, you were a looky-loo faker. And I don't know you. you. Yeah, that was crazy. I used your life in spite of you to save others, but you didn't actually know me. But if you've come to know the Lord, if you truly, and you gotta settle that deal tonight, folks, okay? Don't go home tonight without knowing the Lord. If you've known the Lord, you're guaranteed to go to heaven when you die, okay? No matter what happens to your life. That's not even something you should worry about. What you should worry about, though, is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now you've been given, gifted, inherited the wealth and riches of Christ. It won't be taken from you, but guess what? Doesn't mean anything unless you're willing to work it out. It would be like inheriting a gold mine. Can you imagine that? Someone give you the rights to a gold mine. No way, I got a gold mine. Second question, you got any gold? Not yet. I got to glove up and you know, get in there and start getting after it. Well, how much gold are you going to get? Just, against such there is no law. I guess I can get as much as I want. Maybe I'll just get a little bit and become a weird miser. What? How about you go nuts? How about you go cray-cray and get after and get as much gold as you can? Enough for you, enough for your family, enough for the whole world. Wouldn't that be a good way to live your life? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And what you do down here Listen, this is, it's just important. I don't like these kind of sermons, to be honest. I put this together last night. I went to bed. I felt the enemy's voice in my ear saying, this is going to be a horrible sermon. You're a horrible person. All, the, all these things. I was like, I just did teach chapter five. I should just do it. I don't want to do this standalone sermon. And, and yet I think we need this punch to the arm. Just kind of, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know I do. I know I do. Because Jesus, I'm not just pulling these verses out of thin air and making stuff up. Jesus said in Luke 19, you can write it down, Luke 19, verses 13 through 17, we studied this last year. Jesus said, and he told a story, that a man went away, and he left people in charge, and he asked them to do, listen, it's a B word, business. He said, do business until I return. And when he returned, he asked them consecutively, how'd you do, how'd you do, how'd you do, how'd you do? And each one of them had doubled up what they were given to oversee. Well, I took what you gave me, and I doubled it. I took what you gave me, and I doubled it. I took what you, and one guy at the end, what'd you do? He said, well, I just got kind of scared. I, I didn't do anything. I had the, the gift you gave me, and I, I actually buried it, and I just, you know, played bingo. That's all I did. You know, I just barbecued. I just, I didn't do anything. And Jesus said, are you serious? You know I was coming back? 
I gave it to you to do stuff with, to do business, a specific word, business with my stuff, my, my resources. And so he took what he had, give it to me. He didn't even deserve that. And he gave it to the one who had made the most profit. It's an interesting concept. And then as we get to Revelation chapter four, we see these elders that have crowns that they're worshiping God from. This is where it all comes from, the crowns. When we get to heaven, I don't want South Beach Church to be not represented well. Last thing I want is for you to get to heaven and I'll show up with your SBC hoodies, but no crowns. I got 10 hoodies, you know what I'm saying? Like, they were only 10 bucks, Jesus. You know, like, no, it's not about your hoodie. It's about your fruit. It's about your love. You're not gonna have hoodies in heaven. You're gonna have crowns. That's what the Bible teaches. There's a lot of reasons why we don't get after it and go harder. Why we don't try. Why we don't step up to the plate. As a matter of fact, speaking of plates, Reggie Jackson, famous baseball player. Reggie Jackson holds a couple records in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Reggie Jackson holds two records specifically. The record he holds that is fascinating to me, actually both of them are fascinating. He was number 13, okay, in the world until just recently. Now he's number 14 and somebody succeeded him. And he was number 13 for the longest time, but now he's 14 of the most home-runningest baseball player to ever exist in the universe. I just did this. Someone corrected me at the 9 a.m. service. He's actually left-handed, okay, Reggie Jackson, okay, number 14, of all of the men who've ever played baseball, he hits the most home runs, top 20, 14, he also holds another record, it's on the other side, and he doesn't share it with anybody, he's number one, the number one baseball player to ever step up to the plate, swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss, Reggie, have a seat, you just struck out. He has more strikeouts under his belt than any other baseball player in the universe. Can you imagine having that? Like, hey, I'm number one. At what? Strikeouts? <laughs> Whoops. But then I'm also number 14 on home runs. Well, how do you become number 14 on home runs? Never quit. Swing at everything. Get back up to the plate. It didn't work for you? Well, I tried to be loving to my spouse. It just didn't work. Try again. I tried to be loving to my kids. It didn't work. Try again. I tried to teach Sunday school. I tried to give my life. I tried to do business for the Lord. I tried to be fruit producing. And all the kids just laughed at me and kicked me in the shins. Try again. Maybe choose an older group or something like that. You know? I tried. I tried to host a life group and nobody showed up. I tried to host a life group and too many people showed up. And I got mad at them and kicked them out. You know? Whatever the case is for you, don't quit. This is so encouraging for me. Because again, I don't want to be deceived. As South Beach Church continues just to, to live and grow, it's, it's God's church. He's going to do with her what he wants. Okay, he's actually going to do whatever he wants with this church. He has given me, though, the primary responsibility over this person. It's up to me. It's up to me to make sure I am producing the fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit that he wants me to do. I will either hinder or help him in that. I'm saved by grace. I'm going to heaven, okay? Free. Nothing I can do to add to that. But he has specifically instructed us. There are crowns waiting for you and I to be picked up if we so want to. Only if we want to. Again, while I was preaching this during the 9 a.m., I realized suddenly that we weren't going to get through all six crowns. Only through one. So I'd like to direct your attention now to, to that crown. It's in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. I'll read it to you. It's known as the competitor's crown or the imperishable crown or the crown of self-discipline. I believe it's the crown 
that helps set in order a foundation for the other five crowns that we can go after, that we can earn. Because this competitor's crown talks about that there's actually a competition for crowns. Not against me or even against anybody, but against yourself. That there is a competition, there's a foe deep within that doesn't want you to go further, to produce more fruit, much fruit, and lots of fruit. God doesn't want, the thing inside of you doesn't want that to happen. So Paul addresses that. He says, guys, we need to wake up. We need to be competitors in order that we would find ourselves, listen, apprehending that which God has already preordained for us to walk in. You can write down Ephesians 2.10 if you wouldn't mind. The Bible says that God has preordained good works for you to walk in. (laughs) How cool is that? God already knew when you would exist, who your coworkers would be, what love they need, and he pre-planned and hid treasure along your path for you to enjoy. He already put it there. God is so stinking good. A couple years ago, we went to Alaska, my family and I, and we were up in Juneau and Ketchikan and checking out all these old gold mining cities. And we went to this one particular gold mining city where they had a gold mining kind of contraption, tourist trap really, that you would go to and kind of see how it worked. And for like 20 bucks or something, you could buy a bag of sand, okay? Buy a bag of sand. And they guaranteed that within this sand, it was gold rich. This sand would have within it gold. All you had to do was go to this little place and put it in the pan, you know, and, do, and get all this stuff. And every single one of my kids and I, we did it. And it was real, they just took shovelfuls from the side of this mountain and it was full of gold. To this day, my kids have little vials at home full of gold and silver and all this cool stuff. And all these, it was guaranteed if we did the work just to go and to find what God has preordained for us to look for. Question is, is A, do you believe them? B, are you willing to get back up to the plate and keep swinging at the risk of a swing and a miss? at the risk of failure, at the hope of a home run. There's a lot of reasons why we don't attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. I actually came up with two a couple years ago. One is the fear of failure. Nobody likes to fail. Okay, we don't like to fail. Let let me just tell you about your failures. In God's grace and his economy, your failures actually teach you things. You learn more from your... (laughs) This is bad news. You learn more... I'm sorry about this. I'm gonna tell you the truth though. You actually learn more from your failures than you do your successes. Pretend I didn't say that because that's just horrible news. It's horrible news. But it's the truth. It's the absolute truth. I want to succeed every every single time I try something. I just want to succeed. God says that's not going to be good for anybody. You'll become an even weirder person than you already are. And so the Lord has pre-ordered failure for my life. Trials, opposition to grow me. And so the fear of failure, why would we try a life group? I don't know. Last time it got weird. It just became too much. Listen, do it again. Do it again. Step up, teach Sunday school again, go on a mission trip again, evangelize again, pray with your family again. This morning, my wife and I had communion at the 11 a.m. service, and I was just thinking about where we are in our walk with Jesus and our pursuit of Jesus together. And I was just repenting, saying, Lord, what, what, do you, what, what should we try again? Reading the scriptures together, devotional time, prayer, groups, what should we do again? Things that we've already done, they've already produced fruit in the past, but now we're in a different life cycle, okay, okay? Now what? Get back after it. You still got time. There's more minutes on the clock. Here's the other reason why we don't attempt great things for God or expect great things from God. Number one, the fear of failure. Number two, listen, the fear of success. Did you know that if you actually attempt great things for God, such as witnessing to a coworker, opening up your house for a life group, going to Sunday school, 
getting married, doing things for God. If you, did you know if you actually succeed in those areas, you'll be on the hook for a responsibility of ownership over those people's lives. And most of us right now are super content, fat, and lazy spiritually. We just don't want to do it. Eh, I suppose I could witness my coworker, but what if they get saved and I have to be their friend? I'd rather just, I'd rather just not connect with them. Honestly, fear of failure for sure. Listen, think about this. Meditate on it. Freak out with me. The fear of success. If I go to Starbucks and I memorize every single barista's name, who they are, where they're from, what they're going through, then every single time I show up, I'm going to have to be nice to them. It's a fear of failure, a fear of success. And so instead, I'm just going to play my cards carefully. I don't really want to be too nice to people. Or against such, there is no law. I could be a fruit producer. And I could actually be nice to every single person. And I could trust the Lord that he's going to produce enough love in my little stinking heart to pour out at every coffee house, every check stand, every gas station, every person. You think the, you don't have enough love, by the way, just so you guys know. You guys are broken. Me too. But the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out liberally with us. And so the Lord wants you and I, I, I do believe, to repent in those areas of smallness. And th- maybe, it's just, maybe this is a message just for Luke Frechette and a handful of others, okay? But maybe it's a message for South Beach Church. I, I want to point out that the book of Revelation, the chapters two through three, the churches, are written to a group of churches over 2,000 years. And the last two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea, are examples of who our last day's churches can be. The Philadelphian church was the church of brotherly love. That is that they had the love of God impact them in such a way where they chose to be loving to other people. Jesus looked at that church and he says, spot on, good job. The love of God flows freely through you. Then there was the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church. They had all their bills paid. They had a very comfy environment. And they thought they were wealthy and rich and had need of nothing. And Jesus said, no, you're actually naked, rich, miserable, poor, and blind. And Jesus knocked on that door's heart, that church's heart, and said, I want to come in and sup with you. And I want you guys to get back after it. Don't be lukewarm. Be hot. Fired up. That's what Jesus said. So I want to be the Philadelphian church that is fired up, that is repenting, that is letting the Lord boop, boop, with the, with the, with the scan, scanning my heart. And last night it was so fun for me as I was praying, saying, Lord, it's Luke Frechette. Here we are. Glad I'm not where I was. Not too pumped on where I am, to be completely honest. Thankful, thankful, but let's go next level. Let's do it. And the first crown we're going to look at tonight, the only crown we're going to look at, because you guys are listening real slow. It's actually a mutual problem we have here. It's all me, sorry. First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the competitor's crown. Here's what it says. Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race, <laughs> they all run, but one receives the prize. There's only one winner. So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Run to win is what he's saying. And everyone who competes, I've got that circled, for the prize is temperate. That means disciplined in all things. He goes on to say, they, they do it for a perishable crown. That is athletes. But we for an imperishable crown. There's the crown right there. Therefore, he says, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight. 
not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Stop right there, eyes up here. Paul references athletics in his letters to the churches 14 separate times. Talking about spirituality, like it's a race, it's a fight, it's a battle, we're wrestling, there's rules, there's engagement, there's disqualification, there's prizes, there's finish lines, there's lanes, all this. He, if ESPN.com was available back when Paul was alive, he would have an app on his scroll, okay? He'd be watching, ESPN. he loves sports. And he was able to see the competitive nature, okay, within sports and arenas and athletes overlaid with our spirituality. I hope you can see that too, because there is a battle. There is a race. There are prizes. There are disqualifications. There is more to attain. Are you saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast? Yeah, I'm on the team for free. Are you contributing to the team? That's a very interesting question. Are you engaged in the team? Yesterday we had a soccer game. I coached the U12 Raptors. And on the U12 Raptors, I have 13 players. Okay, and I know my players. I know which ones are gonna contribute. I know which ones are gonna need some exhortation to contribute, and I know which players we're just gonna have to carry for the whole season, okay? I know what's going on. And as I see these players out there contributing, yesterday I couldn't help myself but just yelling their names, thank you for kicking the ball. That's your job, you just kicked the ball. I saw it, I'm your coach, that was legit. I'm telling you to kick the ball. I'm serious, I'm coaching like this. I, thank you for kicking the ball, Woohoo! wow. Banner day for that athlete, you know. And then there's other players. It was so funny. Kevin Cassetti was up with our kids. He's my assistant coach. And we were watching these players help. And there's some stand-up players, some real athletes out there who are playing the forward position. Their job is to strike the goal, to score, okay? Yet our defense was kind of weak yesterday. And so we had this one particular player. He was all over, back and forth the whole game, saving our bacon. And Kevin was asking, why is he back playing defense? I was like, because we have no defense, and he's stepping up to the plate, the proverbial plate. He's trying to help us out. He's doing everything. Sweat, 12-year-old sweat. You ever see 12-year-old sweat? Sweat pouring off his brow, these little kids. Paul says, there's a race, guys. And everyone's running. Woo! Only one wins. That's what he says. It's that simple. There's not a bunch of winners. There's one winner in the athletics. And so he says, because there's only one winner, let's, talking to the church there, 1 Corinthians, let's run to win. Let's be temperate in all things is what he says. Let's be disciplined. Because just running the race is not what I want to do while I'm here. I don't just want to run. I want to run to win daily. My race. I'm not racing against you guys. I'm racing against this guy. He, myself, and I. And God's given me more days, more minutes on the clock. What are you going to do? Paul says, well, here's what you should do. Be, be temperate in all things. Because those guys are being temperate, disciplined for perishable crowns. Michael Phelps isn't tell, taking his eight gold medals to heaven with him. It's temporary. Not taking that glory, but the things you do for Christ, you can take to heaven forever and ever, imperishable crowns that we will use to worship Jesus with forever. It's not gonna be a waste of your time to be more loving and to press into the things of God while on earth. That's what Paul is exhorting us to do. He wants us to have this competitor's mindset. Last night as I was putting this together, I began to think about athletes that I respect. And, and think about athletes that we respect. Most people, without giving it second thought, take athletes that we respect for granted. We just think, well, that person's great. They're just great at what they do. Olympians and gold medalists. Most of us think Michael jo uh, Jordan is just great because he woke up that way, or you know, Tiger Woods, or these guys are just great. Listen, let me tell you a little bit about athletes that you know 
and watch perform. Those athletes are more disciplined in their lives than you'll ever even understand for a perishable crown, for something that doesn't even last forever. You're looking at a competitive guy up on stage, just so you guys know, okay? I like to compete. I'm not opposed to a little competition, a little healthy rivalry. As a matter of fact, things that need to get done, projects around the house, at my house, are done with a timer, okay, in a score chart, and it just makes it more fun for everybody, especially for me, the referee. I told you guys a story that this little hoodie shelf over here on the right and this little sound shelf and Bible shelf on the left, we bought those at Ikea and we assembled them on the same day, Pastor Bo and I, and we raced. We set a clock to see who could finish them before the other person. Right here, we assembled them, and I'm not going to tell you who won, even though I did beat him in that assembly process. It was nuts, man. Sweat. Ikea just looking at each other, you know, what step are you on, you know? It's just fun. It's fun. And Paul here exhorts us. He says, I don't want you to just think that this, this let me just say it this way. It's not going to happen overnight for you. You're not going to become more spiritual tomorrow, okay, without some effort on your part. This is such a weird sermon for me to preach because I'm such a grace-based preacher. I just love what Jesus does in us and the grace of God teaches us to deny, deny ungodliness. But God specifically says, I'm giving you talents. I want you to invest. I want you to produce fruit. I want you to beat your body into submission. Don't think that those champion athletes became champion athletes without actually doing something. You think they worked hard? Well, no, they just woke up super talented. No. I was looking at some of the disciplines that athletes go through in their lives to become the best. Uh, the two main disciplines that athletes exercise to become better than their competitors was sleep and diet. That is how they take care of their body, what they do with their time, and how they fuel themselves throughout their journey to become competitive athletes. And I thought, started thinking about that in my own spiritual disciplines. Have you ever said before, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to witness. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time. Y'all have so much time. You just don't know how to invest it. The problem with you and me is time management. These athletes who know they have a competition or no training coming up, they go to bed. Okay, why? Because I want to win tomorrow. It's that simple. And you and I could accidentally think Christianity is not a competition against the devil and against hell itself. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. There's a competition. We're rescuing people out. And the way you navigate your time, time management, okay, diet. These people, they eat perfectly, not small portions, but perfect portions. What do you eat spiritually? What goes into your eyes? What goes into your ears? Did you know that it counts? It actually matters? It's going to do something for you, for good or bad? It's just the truth. There's this one athlete, this one soccer player, this gal, I can't remember her name, and she said she scored three goals in one game. And so she spent an hour envisioning those three goals afterward and what it would be like to score a fourth because she knew in the next game she needs to score four. That, that was awesome. And she sat there envisioning what's going to happen next. Eddie Townsend and I were hanging out on Monday or Tuesday. I can't remember. It might have been Wednesday. And we were driving back from Corvallis, and he said, hey, Luke, what's your one-month plan? What's your one-year plan and what's your five-year plan for your life? I was like, that's an incredible question. I said, I, I, don't, I don't have a one-month plan, goals, a one-year plan. or I don't have that. And he learned that from Pastor John Corson at the Pastors and Training School years ago. And he said, well, you should maybe consider that. I thought, that's revolutionary. If you just sat down and thought about where you want to be in the next month, what do you like? Well, I don't like this, this, and this. Okay, well, guess what? If you don't do something about it now in your planning stages, <laughs> you're going to be right there where you are right now. And in a year, and in a five years, and you could just set some goals. Ah, it takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of self-assertion. 
takes a lot of assumptions. You better read the Bible. Jesus said he's coming. And right now, we have an opportunity to step up to the plate, set some goals, and do some things. There's other disciplines in here, these athletes that we think are just great. They're taking ice baths after training, physical workouts, training, skills, preparation, all of these things. Did you know that Tiger Woods, he's one of the greatest golfers that ever lived, maybe the greatest golfer, I don't know golf that well, but he's one of the greatest. Did you know that his very first time golfing a hole, it was a par four, 420 yards, it took him 11 strokes to finish that hole, okay? It's par four, so it's double par plus three. That's not good. Okay, it's 11. And it took him 11 strokes to do that. Do you know how old he was when he did that? 18 months old. He had to change his diapers twice, okay? <laughs> twice. I mean, he had two blowouts on the way there. And some of you golf from time to time, and you're like, I still hit an 11. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was not that bad, Luke. He's up on 18 months old. At age three, he entered a 10 and under tournament and he won at age three walking around diapers still you know just you know beating these 10 year olds tiger woods throughout his career he would be more dedicated and disciplined okay in golf in physical fitness eight to 12 hours per day okay run a four mile run in the morning eat a breakfast go hit through all of his clubs for two hours on the driving range Golf nine holes. Work on the field with fundamentals. Come back, work out some more. End the day with another nine hole. End the day with another four mile run just to be a good golfer. And here's my point, here's my point. You could look at the Apostle Paul. You could look at me. You could look at your favorite pastor and author and just think, yeah, they're just, they're just gifted. They're just doing so good out there. I'm just me living in little old Lincoln County. And Lord say, you got the same book, didn't you? I give you the same book, right? You got 1 Corinthians 9 also? Because I gave it to all y'all. And Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He said that in two more chapters. Discipline in my life. Michael Jordan goes down in history. as one of the greatest basketball players to ever live. Five championship rings. Just an amazing man. And during that reign, during the 90s with the Chicago Bulls, he would end his practices and go home at his home court, and he would practice some more. Scottie Pippen figured that out, that he was practicing. He said, can I come over after practice and practice? Scottie Pippen would go over and they would practice after practice. The rest of the starting lineup figured out, well, you guys are practicing after practice. Can we practice after practice with you while you practice? And pretty soon the whole team was going to Michael Jordan's house practicing after practice to become the best basketball team ever to live. I don't like these kinds of sermons because it can be a rah-rah, sis, boom, bah, get fired up and go out there and do something. But I'm telling you what, I'd rather not... Do the opposite, which is to sit here and tell you guys that you're saved, now just settle in and accidentally become that Laodicean church. Lukewarm. And man, oh man, we're in America, are we not? It's easy here. Things are easy. And I feel that the deception is deep. In my own spirituality, in our own fruit producing, because the, the difficulties of our lives are removed. Your problems, your little stuff going on, man, it's actually not difficult enough to produce fruit. Last night before I went to bed, I got on Fox's Book of Martyrs. I googled it and found a PDF version. You should do the same. You can go on Amazon.com and buy Fox's Book of Martyrs. Jesus Freak edition is what I suggest. And as you get this book in the mail is hundreds of stories of men and women throughout the church age, throughout the 2,000 years, that have lived their Christian journey under duress, in situations far harder than ours. 
And in those situations, we're asked and given opportunities to recant their faith, to bow out, to become soft and lukewarm. And instead, I just read, I read one story, then I read two, then I read 10, then I read 20. I kept reading these stories of these men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice for the glory of the King of Kings. I began to look at my own little life. My trials are my trials. Yours are yours. We got real stuff, okay? Don't misunderstand me. Plenty of pain and pressure in this room. And yet there's also a lot of comfort, a lot of things that have been given to us that could accidentally make us very soft. And Paul says, guess what? Guess what, guys? I want you to run to win. I want you to compete against yourself. Jesus said, I want you to produce fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. It's all free. It's your choice. I'm going to have Pastor Ryan come lead us in a song. We're going to take communion now. Guys, God is so patient. Did you know that the rapture could happen at any minute? I wore my rapture socks tonight just in case. You guys have rapture socks? All my socks are rapture socks. I got rapture flip-flops, rapture boots, everything. I'm just ready. But God is patient, and I'm thankful for that. First Peter says God is not slow or slack concerning his promises. Some people accuse God of being slow. He said he was coming back. What the heck? <laughs> what the heck? Why isn't he back yet? What's going on? He's not slow or slack. Instead, here's what he is. Here's what he is. Listen, he's patient. W listen, willing that none should perish, but wanting all people to come to the knowledge of his grace and to be saved. Because when Jesus returns and calls the church home, simultaneously on earth, judgment will be poured out. It's going to be gnarly down here. And until then, Jesus says, no, church, I want you there. I want you there. When the wrath of God comes, the church will be protected. Guess what the Bible teaches clearly? The church isn't seen in chapter 6. There's no church. Chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12, 14. There's no church. Okay, there's just a God-rejecting people group. And so God right now wants the church here. Boots on the ground. Why? Because he wants your love to be seen and to flow. Wouldn't it be just insane if you just made a choice tonight, I'm going to love people differently tomorrow. That's what I'm going to do. You know what I'm going to do? First thing, I'm going to pray for people. Last night as I was putting this together, there was one person that came to my mind that I just, I didn't want to pray for. At least not good prayers. Lord, let the cops arrest them. That's not the prayer. Not that prayer. And I just said, Lord, what, what's it going to hurt me to love this person? They've hurt me. They've attacked me. I don't want to love them, but I can. Can I, can I love them, Lord? I said, yeah, you definitely can love them. And I began to pray loving prayers for them. What if you decided to pray for your, your coworkers that you just, man, you're putting up with right now. You don't like them or your neighbors. What if you truly said, Lord, let love flow. What if that was your biggest goal until you die is to become more loving? I want to invest my time. Lord, produce fruit, more fruit and much fruit. Oh, watch out, watch out, watch out. He's going to prune stuff away in your life. That's what he says, John 15. Why does he do that? Because he loves you. He doesn't want you to get to heaven be bankrupt. Guys, we're going to come to the table. We're going to take communion. And when we do this, we recognize that Jesus did this for us. Because in our own little American baby spirits, we get weak and we spaz out. And Jesus says, don't spaz out. Look at me. Look at me. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look at him, the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 12, lest you yourselves be discouraged in your own souls. So I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and pray. We're going to 
give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus tonight too. If you're not saved, you need to give your life to Jesus. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your patience in Jesus' name. Lord, and I repent of who I am naturally apart from you. Selfish, stingy, small-minded, prideful. Just, I'm sorry. And yet through you, I can do all things. Through you, I can abide in the vine. And as you abide in the vine, Jesus, you promised us that we would produce fruit naturally. As we hang out with you, we'd become more like you. And so in Jesus' name, Lord, we want to be more like you. And if you're here tonight and you hear my voice, and you would say, yeah, Jesus, please. Please, Jesus. I want to produce more fruit. Maybe I'm scared. Maybe I'm gun shy. Maybe I did swing and I did miss. Maybe I'm selfish and I did swing and I actually connected and it was, man, it was just more work than I anticipated. But if you're here tonight and you would, you would say, Lord, I want to produce fruit. I want to produce much fruit and more fruit. Would you just raise your hand up right now and just agree with what Jesus said? Raise up your hand and say, yeah. Let it begin in your house. Let it begin with your spouse, your kiddos. Love them. Become more loving, a more loving father, more loving mother, a more loving spouse, a roommate, whatever it is for you, Lord. Put your hand up if that's you. Lord, my hand is up too. Would you show me, Lord? Would you reveal to me what disciplines need to be applied to my life? What I need to do differently, what I need to do more of? Lord, do that. Produce more fruit. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. We invite you into our hearts. The Christians who are raising their hands, they say, yeah, do it, Jesus. Turn it up. Turn it up until you return. Make me more loving. You can put your hands down. And if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, you're just not saved yet, but today's the day where you get on the team and you let Jesus forgive you of your sins. If that's you right now, I'll give you opportunity to make that deal where you say, Jesus, take my sins from me, pay for them, and I will take your righteousness from you and invest it in loving other people. If that's you, if you want to get saved tonight, would you raise your hand up right now? Amen. Anybody join this one and say, yeah, I see you too. Anybody join these and say, these two, I see three and four. In Jesus' name, Lord, people giving their lives to you. Anybody join these as well? I see five. Anybody join these and say, yes, Lord, I want to be on the team. Lord, you see these hands in Jesus' name. Bless them. Give them a purposeful life as you forgive their sins, Lord, and give them a reason to live and to love others. Lord, because we're going to heaven, anoint them and seal them right now in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you. You can put your hands down. And as we come to the table, it represents Christ's body broken, his blood spilled, that we can do all things through him. And so we celebrate you, Jesus. We examine ourselves and proclaim your death until you return. We do what we do now for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.